Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. What is faith's foundation? And faith's foundation for us is that resurrection. It is that resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to cover all 58 verses this morning. So stand with me. Let's read quickly as we read the first 11 and, and dive in. I just saw trepidation cross the faces of many in the room. But uh, anyhow, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 starting in verse number 1. It reads like this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which was also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I, which I preach to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you first of all that which is I also received that Christ died for our sins according to scripture that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to scripture and that he was seen by Cephas then by 12 after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you Believed. Father, this morning we have been immensely blessed by you in our presence today as we have worshipped you, as we've sung praises to your name this morning, Father. And now as we open the word and look at that pivotal point in Christianity, the point that really makes Christianity what it is, the resurrection, I pray that you make it come alive in our hearts if there be one here that has not believed. Today, Father, I pray that your conviction falls so heavily upon them that they do not leave this place until they answer the question, do I believe and have I placed my faith in this Jesus? Today, make very little of me, very much of you, that you may be seen in all of your glory. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. This passage speaks of the afterlife. The afterlife. You know, the afterlife did not begin with Christianity. Christianity did not believe or did not uh, set forth or, or make the afterlife known. They were not the first ones to believe that there was an afterlife. How do we know that? They, they've dug up Egyptian pharaoh's tombs. They've dug up these tombs. And in those tombs, they found this thing called the book of the dead. <laughs> the, the book of the dead. They've also found there what they called solar boats. They found these boats there along with other things. What were the purpose of these things? If you read through the book and understood and you connected that with the boats that were found there, you would understand that the book was a guide for the afterlife. The boat was the way they went. So the Egyptians, thousands of years ago, believed there was an afterlife. The Greeks, <laughs> the Greeks had a very interesting way of saying there was an afterlife. Where when they dug up Greek bodies and found them, they found placed in their teeth a coin. You know what the coin was for? 
to pay the crossing over this mystic river. To pay for this crossing over a mystic river. They saw this mystic river as, as a crossing from the life here to a life there. You know, we as Baptists sometimes sing about a mystic river. It's called the Jordan, the mighty Jordan, which, by the way, you could jump across with a really good head start now. But this mystic river, the Buddhist, <laughs> we all know the Buddhists have been involved because what do the Buddhists believe? A little thing called transmigration of life. Transmigration of life. What does that big word mean? That means if I was a Buddhist, I would be praying that I came back something better than what I am now. Because when you die, you're reincarnated into something else. So they believe there is this eternal life in that manner. China and Japan, even today, have something they call ancestor worship. They believe that there's worship of ancestors. Why would you worship an ancestor that was dead? So, you know, the Americans got in on it, too. The original Americans, not not us that invaded America later, but the American Indians. Remember those guys? The American Indians. You know, they have dug up those guys. You know what they found? They were buried with their bow, with their quiver of arrows, and oftentimes with their pony or their horse. Because they were headed to this thing they called the happy hunting ground. So they believed there was this afterlife. What happens after death has always been a question on the hearts and minds of all humanity. Nobody really wants to believe all there is, is this. (laughs) Who really wants to believe all there is to life is what I've enjoyed here these 50 years or so? Who wants to believe that all there really is to my existence is, quite honestly, this miserable life, so to speak? You know, and Jesus answered that question for us. He answered that question very loudly. And his answer to that question is actually the foundation of our faith. See, the foundation of our faith is not the cross. I hope you understand that. The cross in and of itself is not the answer. For has Jesus stayed upon the cross? You would have been forgiven for your sins then. And somebody would have had to pay the rest of them for you later. See, there was a tomb. There was a tomb he was placed in and rose again as proof positive that what he did was pay for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And that you would have an eternal life, not on a solar boat with the book of the dead, not with your bow and arrow and a pony, not with a coin in your mouth, but everlasting life in the presence of God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. And see, he answered that. And fortunately, one of my favorite writers of the whole New Testament took an entire chapter, the 15th chapter of Corinthians, 58 verses to explain to us this resurrection. We're going to cover all 58 verses this morning, and we're going to do it in a hurry. Because Paul gives us the most comprehensive explanation of the resurrection and how it is the foundation of our faith. And he does, first and foremost, starts with explaining how it is the foundation of our faith by giving us evidence of the resurrection. Evidence of the resurrection. And the first evidence that he gives us of the resurrection is the fact that the church believed it. Look at verses 1 and 2 that I just read to you. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare the gospel which uh, I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. Paul starts off, Paul says the, resurre- the resurrection is true because of three things within the church. Number one, when the gospel was preached, you received it. 
Have you ever thought that your reception of the gospel is proof that the resurrection is true? But that's what Paul says. He says, which I preach to you, which also you received. See, the fact that you receive the gospel is proof that it's true. The second thing that he makes a point on is he says, in which you stand. See, the church not only received the gospel, the church took a stance on the gospel. Who of us would stand for something we believe would be a lie to the point of death? Anyone? Would anyone stand up for a lie and be killed just to prove a point? See, the church receiving the gospel and then standing on the gospel through the persecution through all the ages is proof positive that that gospel message is true. The third thing and the most powerful of the church's witnesses in verse 2 when it says, which by also you are saved. You see, proof positive that Jesus came from the tomb is the fact that you are saved. If someone wants to argue with you that he didn't rise from the dead, you explain your salvation and the argument is over. (laughs) Because like the other religions, the other uh, uh, lifestyles, the the other uh, people that I mentioned, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Buddhists, you know the, the thing about Buddhists that separates them from us? You could go see Buddha, dead in a tomb. He's still there. You know what they're worshiping? Bones. Now tell me, have you ever worshipped a set of bones that could do anything for you? Anything at all? Have you ever had a dead anything that could do anything for you? But yet, they worship someone who didn't even have the power for eternal life. What makes us different as the church? We know he raised from the dead because we receive that gospel, we stand firm on that gospel, and we are saved by that gospel. The question then comes up, so what is the gospel you receive, stand on, and are saved by? Fortunately, he goes on to make that the second evidence of resurrection. Whenever he says in verse 3 and 4, For I have delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And what was the first thing that he received? The first thing that he received that was proof positive that the resurrection was true is when he said that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. So he starts with the proof positive of death. See, Paul says the, res- the resurrection is true because of fulfillment of the word. Fulfillment of the word. Because of the audience Paul was speaking to, we have to assume he was pointing back to what they knew to be true because the word in their time did not contain the New Testament. It was the scrolls of the Old Testament, the old books. We have to assume that Paul was looking back to those things that they held firm to. Things like, for instance, flip over to Psalms. Psalms chapter uh, 22. Psalms chapter 22 talks about this death, burial, resurrection. It says this. The very first verse of Psalms 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever heard that somewhere else? Keep in mind when this was written, long before Jesus was nailed to a cross. Yet from the cross, those very words flowed from his mouth. 
See Paul starting to get to the heart of things for them. He goes on in verse 6 and, and it says this in Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm uh, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by people. For all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. What was one of the things said to Jesus on the cross? If you are God, save yourself and save me too. Do you see it? Do you see it? He moves down to verse 12. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have enriched me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Brings back the picture of those who spit upon him who shook their head at him, who ridiculed him, who hung a sign over his head, King of the Jews. He moves on to verse 14, and probably one of the most positive proofs of Scripture fulfilled in the resurrection and the death and the burial of Jesus. It says this in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleans to my jaws and have brought me to the dust of death. Remember, they were breaking the bones of all those that were there, yet Jesus' bones they did not break. It just says they were out of joint. And remember, he said, I thirst hanging on the cross. I thirst, just like it says there. It goes on to talk about this resurrection. In Psalms, in many places, that's just one. Flip with me over to Isaiah because the strongest point of this death, burial, and resurrection, the, the prophecy of what's going to happen to Christ comes in the 53rd uh, a book, uh, a chapter of, of Isaiah. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Let's just look for sake of time down in verse number 5. I'm just going to read through a very little comment. It says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The, trans, uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Remember I said that one of the evidences is the church taking in the gospel and holding to the gospel. <laughs> one of the things they would have remembered is by their stripes we are healed. They wouldn't have thought physically. They would have thought spiritually or as a nation being healed. It goes on in 6. And we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. And he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears. It silent. So he opened not his mouth. Remember what they said, will you not speak against these accusations? Yet he stood quiet. Goes on in verse 8, and he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. We talked about that. Those that hung on the cross were normally thrown into the garbage dump. Yet here came a rich man and asked for his body. <laughs> it says, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant 
shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. See, when, when Paul, when Paul looked at them and he said that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, their mind immediately went back to those prophecies. And they could make the connection between what Christ had done and what they had been told the Messiah would do. They made those connections. But you know, I think he also could have been speaking to those who had been with Jesus or around Jesus or had seen Jesus, which is our New Testament. They would have seen the things and heard the things that were written to us in the New Testament. And it reminds me of passages like Matthew 20, 28, whenever he says, Just as, as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life the ransom for many. I'm sure as he spoke, there were those there that remembered those words of Jesus. And then those wonderful words from John 6, 51, where he says, I am the living bread, <laughs> which came down from heaven. I am the living bread, which came down to heaven. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And just to make sure they understood, Jesus said, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. See, whenever he said, just as scriptures say, that's what they thought. But he goes on to say, not only Christ died according to the scripture, but you'll notice in, in the fourth verse there, it says, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day again, according to scriptures. See, he used the scripture in their mind to remind them of the death of Christ. Now he's bringing from those scriptures the reminder that it was told that Jesus would rise from the dead. An interesting passage as I was studying this sitting in my office yesterday morning came to mind. It can only be God because I have never made this connection. But do you realize Genesis chapter 1 Verse 9 gives us a precursor of what was going to happen with Jesus at the tomb when it says this. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it says it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Check this out. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herbs that yield seed and the fruit trees that yield fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And he says, and it was so. In verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and a tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And it says, and God saw that it was good. Here's the connector. <laughs> So the evening and the morning of the third day. Isn't it amazing that Christ rose from death into life on the third day? The same day of creation that God's earth brought forth life? See, it was a precursor in their mind of what was going to happen. Again, in Psalms it was mentioned in Psalm 16. In Psalms chapter 16, it was mentioned again about this 
resurrection. Psalm 16, verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, when he said the scripture said that Jesus would rise from the dead, they said in their mind there was a prophecy that you would not allow your Holy One to see corruption. See, they understood that in John chapter 2. It's probably the most famous proclamation by Jesus of his own resurrection. In John chapter 2, in verse 19, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? But it says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, whatever Paul said, there is most definite evidence of the resurrection. He said it was because the church believed the gospel, stood on the gospel, that they were firm on it, and that they were willing to be sacrificed and and tortured for it, and that most of all, that they were saved by that gospel. That's evidence number one. Evidence number two is that it was told years Hundreds, thousands of years before that it was going to happen. And right there in his presence were those who would have known that law. And he points to what they knew to prove to them that which they didn't believe. And he says, so the word is a scripture, is, is evidence. But he goes on to one more thing. He goes on one more thing with the evidence. In verse number five, he says uh, this in verse number five. He says, You know, there's going to be some eyewitnesses. There's some that have laid eyes on this resurrected Jesus. There are those who have seen him. And how does he give us a list here? He says in verse 5, And that he was seen by Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter. I think it's interesting that he mentioned Peter. Because if you remember, it was Peter who cut off the ear that Jesus put back on when they came to, to capture him. It was Peter who said, I will never forsake you. The rest may... And when Jesus came through the courtyard, headed over to Caiaphas' house, there stood Peter. And when they said, that's one, he said, no, I don't know him. They saw him again and said, that's one. No, I, I, I don't know him. And one more time, they said, that's him. And not only did he say, I don't know him, he cursed him. So they point out here that Peter had gone from being one that said, I don't know this Jesus, to being one that said, I have seen him rise from the dead. The same one that stood in their midst and said, I don't know that Jesus, now stands in their midst and said, kill me if you like, but I've seen him. I've seen him alive. It goes on from saying that to saying the 12 there. Then it goes on to say, and over 500 brethren. Now, if he'd have stopped there and said 500 brethren, we'd assume that he'd been walking around 500 individual people had seen him. But notice what he says, 500 brethren at once. It's one thing for 500 individual people to make up a lie. It's another thing to get 500 people in one place and say, okay, you're all going to say you saw this Jesus alive and get them to agree. You ever been in a Baptist meeting, a business meeting? It's tough to get 30 to agree. You think you're going to get 500? He says 500 at one time saw him. 
He even goes on to say, and the greater part of them are alive. Go ask them. He says, go ask them. He moves from there in verse 7 to say, and after this, it was seen by James. We don't know which James. Maybe it was his half-brother James. But he also says, then by all the apostles. Because how did you become an apostle, by the way? By seeing the risen Christ. It's the only way you could be an apostle. Then he goes on to make one of the strongest points of all, because, you know, eyewitness is always the strongest point. Paul goes on to say in verse number 8, Then, last of all, he was seen by me. He says, you can tell me that Peter didn't see him. You can tell me the 12 didn't see him. You can even try to convince me the 500 didn't, but I laid eyes on the risen Savior. And he says, just to make my point, he says, it's one as uh, born out of due time. What does that mean? He didn't walk with the other 12 with Jesus. He ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus. What was he about to do to the road on Damascus? He tells us in verse 9 what he did. I persecuted the church. He was on the way to persecute the Christians for believing this stupid lie about this risen Savior. He was going to torture them and say, you know that's not true. Quit going against the law. He was going to kill them for saying Jesus rose from the dead. Then he bumped into the risen Savior. And his entire world changed. Remember, he was blinded. He was taken away. He saw some days later. He actually went to study and learn. Then he came back and became the most prolific spreader of the gospel that there has ever been. Because the Bible you hold in your hand is filled full of his writings. Story after story after story of how he was beaten, shipwrecked, tortured. All for that gospel that he was an eyewitness of. So he says that he was a persecutor. So there is evidence of the resurrection. But you know what? He doesn't stop with just the evidence. He moves on to a second point about this resurrection being the cornerstone of our faith. When he says that there is importance of the resurrection. This is where he comes right down to the heart of it. In verse 12 he says this. Now if Christ is preached and he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So he give all the other stuff as a precursor to jump in and say let's answer the question that you've been raising. You're saying there is no resurrection. He goes on in verse 13 to say, if there is no resurrection, then what happened? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ didn't rise. He moves on from verse 13. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching's empty. What we do every Sunday morning is useless. And he says, not only that, your faith, it's also useless. He moves from that into 15. He says, yes. Not only is our preaching useless, not only did Christ not rise from the dead, but guess what? We're all false witnesses to God. Why? Because we're saying that he rose from the dead, and if he didn't, we're liars. Every one of us is a false witness before God, if Christ did not rise from the dead. He goes on to verse 17 and says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, worthless, Foolish. Your faith, if he is not risen from the dead, your faith is foolish. He goes on to verse 18 to say, Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. Said, so you want me to give you the really good news? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, all those folks that have gone on before you are perished. There's no hope. There's no hope for them. Then he goes on to say, in verse 19, This is the one that really hits to the heart. It says, in this life only, we have hope in Christ. 
we are of all men the most pitiable. He says, if Christ did not rise from the dead and you stood before others and said that, you've assembled on Sunday morning to worship this risen King, if you've spent your life spreading the gospel that there is this Savior that will save you, if that's been your story, (laughs) that's what you've been holding to, you're an idiot. He said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, you are a fool to have done that. He said, everything that you've preached, everything you believed is in vain. He said, but there is some importance in verse 20. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. That's an emphatic statement. He stands before the ones that says there is no resurrection. He goes through the the things that make it foolish to say there is. And then he stands before them to be foolish. And he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And he says, as evidence of the resurrection, the importance of that resurrection, that Christ is our first fruits. For it says, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is the word for death. The word for death. And, and the first fruits is, is the first of whatever you have. For farmers in their day, uh, in the old days, whenever they would cast out their, their grain, they would start in the corner of a field and they would cast out the grain and they'd go across. It may take them days or weeks to get a field planted because they did everything by hand. And then they would come along and they would cover it all up. And you could imagine as the field came to ripen, it would start where it was planted first and finished where it was planted last. So this field would be growing across the field instead of all of it coming up at once like we do today with machinery. So when it says first fruits, it's talking about those farmers that would take out of obedience to God the first that came out of the ground to God because that was his part, trusting that God would cause the rest of the field to grow. See, when we think about first fruits, we're taking a paycheck we've already gotten and we're taking a part of it and giving it to God. What if I told you first fruits was you give the money to God first and then wait on your paycheck Friday? How many would put your offering in the plate today with great anticipation you would get paid next Friday? See, when we talk about first fruits, it's not taking what we've already got and giving to God. It's giving the only thing we have, trusting that God will give us everything we need. And he says first fruits very specifically to let us know the importance of this resurrection. You see, Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. Before any of those who died, the first fruit from the ground of resurrection is Jesus Christ. You may say, there's been others that have been raised from the dead. Sure, Jesus himself did it. His friend Lazarus, he raised the children. But there's a difference. Each of those died again. None of those stayed resurrected. Yet Jesus was the first that had resurrected and stayed resurrected. See, death, it says in verse 21a there, came by man, for since by man came death, who is that? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. So death showed up on this earth because man decided to not do what God said and sinned. So he says there is this death, but then he says in verse 21b, the second part, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And in the second part of of 22, it says, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Death showed up because man decided to sin. Life showed up because God decided to send Christ to die for our sins and rise as the first fruit of resurrection for us. So there is 
this resurrection that's being denied. There is this Christ being our first fruit, but the importance also is in an order of the resurrection so that you would have hope in knowing that there is going to be a resurrection from the dead. There's this order in verse 23 very quickly. It says, but each one is in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, if we've already mentioned, the first to rise. Then it says, afterward, those who are in, or who are Christ at his coming. He mentions that he's coming back when he's talking to the disciples. Again, it's mentioned here that he's coming back. He's coming back as the first fruit of those risen. And what's he coming back for? To raise the rest. He's coming back to raise the rest. You see, now Paul's taken this resurrection discussion from being as Jesus resurrected to, are you going to be resurrected? He's moved the entire camera to look at you. And he says this, that there is this particular order. Matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, very quickly, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And this is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It says, Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For in 14 it says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who Sleep in Jesus, those who have already passed. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, what he says when he writes that there's going to be those who have already died, they're coming out first. Those bodies are coming out of the ground to be joined with those spirits that have already gone to be with God. They're going to be joined together. And then those of us who are alive are going to be snatched from this earth to join them in the air and be with Jesus forever. If that doesn't make you jump and shout, something's wrong with your relationship with Jesus. Because now, finally, we have the reason, the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection is when your body goes in that ground, it doesn't stay there. I am just so glad that God has made provision for us to be with Him forever. You see, and he also very quickly, and I know I'm out of time, but very quickly he says this. He says, there's also this power in the resurrection. For he says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to uh, the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. See, part of that resurrection is the fact that Jesus is going to come back and snatch the power that Satan has over this world. He's going to take it back. He says in verse 25, for he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. All the enemies are going to be put under his feet. And the most glorious thing is verse 26. In verse 26, he says this, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. When he comes back and breaks us from the ground, there will never again be a funeral. Never again will we have a loved one separated from us if they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Never again will we weep over a grave. Because when Christ comes back, death will be defeated forever. See, there is power in that resurrection. So we see the evidence of the resurrection. We've seen the importance of the resurrection very quickly. Let's look at the victory of the resurrection. We get this glorious body. I wanted to leave this part out because we're out of time. But you know what? I just got to tell you, 
I am so glad. I'm so glad to know that I'm not going to have this body <laughs> for eternity. I, I'm thinking, I'm kind of picturing myself being skinny and good looking with a lot of muscles. So I'm going to picture it. But we're going to have a new body. And it says it's going to be a glorious body. Paul tells us that we'll be raised up into this glorious body. We won't be stuck with this body now that has head colds and body aches and things that hurt. And we won't be stuck with that physical body any longer. We'll be raised to have this glorious, glorious body. The question that's been raised is how can a body that's been decomposed in the ground be raised? Paul answers that in verse 36 very quickly. It says, foolish one, what you now sow is made alive. Uh, unless is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the, the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases. He goes on to say there's different kinds of flesh. There's even celestial bodies out in the air. What makes you think that God can't take that body that's been in the ground and make it into a new glorious body? He said if He could take a seed that you can't even identify when you put it in the ground and turn it into a redwood tree... He can put a few pieces of dust back together and give you a glorious body. He said, what makes you think that the God of all creation can't take that body that's been in that ground and hook it to a soul and it be a glorious body forever? He jumps right straddle their face and says, you are a fool if you think God can't do that. He says, you're going to have this glorious body. Verse 42, matter of fact, he turns and says, so also in the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown natural. It is raised spiritually. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it was written, again back to scripture, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life giving spirit he says what's going to happen is that first adam came and sin caused your body to die but there came another adam and his name is jesus christ he comes in spirit to raise you from the dead he said so there is going to be a glorious body but then there is this final victory I'm just going to read. There is no way to do any better than Paul did with this final victory. There is absolutely nothing that can be said that Paul didn't say. So in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, uh, 15th chapter in the 50th verse, I'm just going to read to you the final victory. You stay in your seat if you want. You jump up and run. I don't care. I may join you. It says this in 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I told you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. He says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on, uh, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immorality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What is the victory of the resurrection? That you're no longer 
longer going to be incorrupt. You're going to be, you're going to be raised incorruptible. You're no longer going to have corruption in your body. You're going to be raised in glory. You're going to be like Jesus. You're going to be changed to where you are like Jesus. That raises a question. Have you ever trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? For if you have not, this morning's message is in vain. For you, there is no power in the resurrection. For the dead will also be brought back. But they will not be brought back to look like Jesus. They will be brought back to be cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity. They will spend all of eternity separated from the God who loved them through his only begotten son. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should tremble at the thought of resurrection. Your blood should run cold. Because resurrection for you will begin the most miserable time of your entire life. You say, well, God's a God of love. Yes, and explain to me why Jesus talked about hell more than he ever talked about heaven in the Bible. It's because he doesn't want you to go. He wants you to trust in what he did upon the cross. For God requires the spilling of blood for the forgiveness of sin. He made the requirement and supplied the sacrifice to do it. He placed that sacrifice upon a cross that died. That's Jesus. That washed you white as snow. He placed him into a grave and raised him from the dead so that you could see the power of this God and have the hope of eternal life as we talked about this morning. Yet you have a part to play in that. Have you ever confessed him to be both your Lord and your Savior? Savior means you've accepted what he did on the cross. Lord means you've turned your life over to him. Those are two separate things. They have to happen simultaneously. But you can't just say, I accept his death upon a cross for forgiveness of my sins and then walk away and do whatever you want to do because he is not your Savior or your Lord at that point. You must believe he died for your sins and give your life to him out of what he gave for you, his life. And then Romans tells us you must confess with your mouth that he is Lord. (laughs) He is my Savior. But you also have to believe in your heart That God raised him from the dead. For without the belief of the resurrection, there is no eternal life. This morning, have you believed that? If not, I pray God works in your heart. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.